I got to say, I was really impressed with the jokes. I want to make sure I get y'all's resource for that so that we can pass that along more in the future. Those were really good, weren't they? Um, yeah, I think I just need a hand hug today. Um, let's see. I'm on number three. There we go. Um, technical difficulty. Hey, we're in a series on uh, the life of David, and so um, I want to give you just a little bit of review of what we covered last week, because that kind of sets up what we're talking about today. Last week, we talked about how we saw how Saul, King Saul, the king of Israel, had developed this um, a deep sense of jealousy for David. David had tremendous success. He had just fought Goliath. He had just routed the Philistines off the battlefield. And so Saul begins to feel this jealousy as David continues to have more and more success. Saul begins to feel more and more jealous. And the scripture said that Saul kept a jealous eye on David to the point that Saul decides he's going to commit cold-blooded murder of David. Look at this verse real quick, 1 Samuel chapter 18 and verse 10. It says that Saul had a spear in his hand, so he's sitting there, he's fingering the spear while he hears David playing his harp in the, in the temple palace. And then David comes walking out in verse 11, and it says that Saul hurled the spear at David, for he thought, I'll pin him to the wall. So Saul has these, uh, these horrible intentions toward David that he wants to kill David because this jealousy, this bitterness is just boiling up inside of him. He's resentful of, of David. He's, he's, uh, uh, he, just, he, he wants David gone. He wants him eliminated. And so what we want to look at today is, well, how did David handle that situation where he has Saul who's hating on him? All the time, everywhere David goes, Saul's hating on him, he's against him. Um, how does David handle that situation where there's this enemy that's now emerged in his midst? How does David handle uh, that situation with Saul? And so um, our text today comes from 1 Samuel chapter 18. We're going to be reading verses 12 through 16. And as is our custom in here at Hebrew, and I'm going to ask you to stand for the reading of God's words. So let's stand and read together 1 Samuel chapter 18, verses 12 through 16. Here we go. Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with him, but had departed from Saul. So Saul removed him from his presence and made him a commander of a thousand. And he went out and came in before the people. And David had success in all his undertakings, for the Lord was with him. And when Saul saw that he had great success, he stood in fearful awe of him. But Israel and Judah... I love David, for he went out and came in before them. You may be seated. Thank you so much. All right, I just want to walk through these verses together. And um, let's start at verse 12. It says that Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with him and had departed from Saul. Verse 13. So Saul removed him from his presence and made him a commander of thousands, that is, of soldiers. He put David in charge of a bunch of soldiers, sent him off to some platoon, some place in the distant part of Israel, didn't want to see David, didn't want to have anything to do with him, couldn't remove him couldn't just eliminate David outright because David was really popular amongst all the people of Israel. It would have been politically suicidal for, for, Dave, for Saul to do something like that. So he puts him in charge of some of his army. So he went out, it says, and came back in before the people, verse 14. And David had success in all of his undertakings, for the Lord was with him. Verse 18, when Saul saw that he had great success, that is more feelings of, dis of, dis of despising, David, more feelings of fear toward David, all that stuff starts to give rise into Saul. And as a result of that, Saul stood in fearful awe of David, it says. Then the last verse here, verse 16 of what we read, but all of Israel and Judah loved David, for he went out and came in before them victorious. So David's experiencing victory after victory after victory in front of uh, the people of Israel. Everything it seems like David touches is turned into gold. David's having tremendous 
success in everything that David does. And uh, as a result of that, you can, on the other side, Saul is just this boiling, oh, I just want to get rid of this guy, I just want to eliminate him, I just want to wipe him, wipe him off a planet. Um, but David's doing what David does. David's a proven winner. Meanwhile, Saul is standing over there and he's just brooding, right? He's boiling on the inside toward all this. And so what we're going to see in the coming weeks is that Saul comes up with scheme after scheme after scheme of trying to eliminate David or trying to knock him off, wipe him out, get rid of David forever. And so the first of those schemes that we run into is right here in chapter 18. So take a look at verse 20 with me, moving forward in the story. It says, so now Saul's daughter Michael loved David, and David felt that same way about her. And the two of them, they approached Saul to share that, hey, look, we've got these mutual feelings for one another. We want to get married. So they went to Saul and told him about it. And it says that this pleased Saul. Now you're thinking to yourself, what are you talking about, Gordon? I thought you said that David or that Saul hated David. Why would it please him for David to marry Saul's daughter? Why would he want to bring David into the family? Why would that please him? I don't understand what we're talking about here. I would have thought that it would have been the opposite of that. Well, again, uh, Saul's got a scheme in mind. Let's take a look at what Saul's scheme is. Verse 22, and so Saul commanded his servants, speak to David in private and say, behold, the king has delighted in you, lie. He doesn't delight in David at all. He absolutely hates David. But this is part of the deception. And then he says, and all of his servants love you too. Then become one of the king's son-in-laws. So here's the, here's the scheme, verse 27 or 23. And Saul's servant spoke these words in the ears of David. And David said, does it seem to you a little thing to become the king's son-in-law when you figure that I'm a poor man, that is, I'm a shepherd, I'm from a shepherd's family, I don't have any money, I don't have any titles, I don't have any position, I don't come to you with, with lots to offer in terms of a dowry. Because back then in the ancient Near East, in order to take a bride, you'd have to pay the bride's family a particular amount of money, that would have been a dowry, uh, because that family is losing something. Uh, this lady represents tremendous worth, represents tremendous value to that family, and she's leaving that household. And so in payment to the family for the loss of their daughter, uh, the, the, the bridegroom would have brought a bride price. And David's saying, I'm just a poor shepherd. I don't have any money. I don't have any position. I don't have any status. I don't have anything to offer you in payment for a princess. Right? This is not just farmer girl out there. This is a princess. This is the king's daughter. David's saying, I can't pay whatever the price is. So Saul comes up with an idea. This was his scheme here. Verse 25, it says, the king desires no bride price. You don't have any money, no problem. Uh, you don't have any title, no problem. You don't have any position, not an issue. You don't have any trade agreement that you can offer me because you're the king of some foreign land territory. We're going to enter into some kind of contractual thing here. That's not a problem. Here's what I want you to do. Instead, bring me a hundred foreskins of the Philistines that he may be avenged of the king's enemies. So there's Saul's plan. I'm going to send David out onto the battlefield to bring me a hundred foreskins of Philistine soldiers. That is, he's got to go out and kill a hundred Philistine soldiers and bring those into the king's palace as payment, as his dowry, right? So he's got to knock off all these Philistines in order to obtain uh, Michael as his wife. Um, so, uh, if you don't understand exactly the exposition of what I'm talking about there, I'm not going to go any further with that particular verse, and it'll just leave you to figure out exactly what it is that David was up to on his own. So, verse 27, moving right along. David arose and went out along with his men and killed not 100, but 200 Philistines, and David brought their foreskins, which were given in full number to the king. And so, having paid the bride price into verse 27, Saul gave David, reluctantly, I imagine, uh, to David as David's wife. 
So Saul's thinking to himself, look, if I can send David out there into the battlefield to have to go kill 100 Philistines, sooner or later somebody's going to get a blade into this guy. Sooner or later, David's luck is going to run out on the battlefield. He's been fighting all these battles for me. Sooner or later, David's going to get knocked off. He can't keep cheating death with literally the ratio, the number of times he keeps going into, uh, in, into, into harm's way. And so he's counting on the fact that David's going to die along the path of trying to pay this bride price out. But it doesn't work out that way, right? David's blessed to the Lord. The Lord watches over David. David continues to have victory after victory, and his name and his popularity just continue to grow. So you can imagine, on the other side of that, Saul's just desperate desire to wipe David out intensifies all the more. Now, what does David do about all this? Last verse for us, verse 30. Here's how David responds in that situation is he says, uh, verse 30, Then the princes of the Philistines came out to battle as often as they came out. David had more success than all the servants of Saul, so that David's name was highly esteemed. Friends, David did not allow Saul's hatred of him, throwing spears at him on two different occasions, it says there in the scriptures. He didn't allow any of that to thwart him from doing his duty. David continued to go out day after day, get up, go uh, address the threats as they presented themselves, and to do his duty on behalf of the king, on behalf of the nation of Israel that he loved so much. All right, that's our story for today, and so that means it's time for us to ask the question that we ask each and every week around here, the most important question, which is, what difference does all this make to my life, right? Uh, because it's Father's Day, and you're wondering how in the world you're going to tie all this stuff into Father's Day. Um, so what difference does all this make to, to make to my life? You say, Gordon, I mean, we don't pay dowries around here. I appreciate how you handle that bit with the foreskins thing. But, I mean, what difference does any of this make to where I live? How does this impact my everyday life? Well, let's talk about that. It's a really good question. Um, David had an enemy, and David's enemy was declared to him as Saul, right? So David didn't say, Saul's my enemy. Saul declared David as his, and so David uh, just developed an enemy there over time, and that was Saul. Um, and David had to deal with his enemy, Saul, in such a way that it didn't evaporate God's blessings over his life. He had to deal with Saul and deal with Saul's hatred of him in a way that honored God, that blessed God, that didn't try to take venge, vengeance on his, on his own. On his own. Um, and so the question that we have is, well, what did David do in order to handle this enemy that he had in his life, in order to handle this person that was hating on him in his life, how did he do it in such a way that God honored him and blessed him as a result of all of that? Um, how should we handle a situation like that biblically? All right, so I got three principles I'm going to share with you about how we can handle an enemy, about how we can handle those people that are, uh, don't like us or that don't like us for whatever the reason is, but that are hating on us. How do we deal with those people? All right, so principle number one, first way to deal with somebody that's hating on you is to go to that person and to try to make things right, to go to that person and try to make things right. Matthew chapter 5 and verse 23, Jesus said these words as part of the Sermon on the Mount. He said, so if you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, what should you do in that scenario? Verse 24, he said, leave your gift there at the altar and go and first be reconciled to your brother and then come. So after you've reconciled with your brother, then come back to the church and offer your gift the Lord there. So what's Jesus doing here? What's he saying here? He's saying, look, if you go to church and you're at church and you remember that you have a, uh, an issue between you and a brother, that there's some unreconciled something going on in a relationship in your life, he says, look, leave your gift there at the altar. So Jesus is placing a huge premium on human relationships. Jesus is saying, look, basically, 
if, if a watching world is seeing what we do and is saying, look, if you go to church on Sunday, but on Monday you come and you hate your brother and you're at odds with your brother, then the watching world's going to say, well, there's nothing authentic about these people. There's nothing authentic about Christianity. Why would I want to be a Christian? And so Jesus places a huge premium here on human relationships. Um, and the start, the beginning to fixing those relationships is by trying, attempting to have a conversation with that person with whom we are not reconciled. Did David do this? Absolutely he did. A little bit later in the story of David, 1 Samuel chapter 26 and verse 18, um, he has just had an opportunity to kill Saul. He snuck into the Israelite camp uh, and, and he snuck into uh, Saul's tent during the night and Saul's spear is there and his uh, soldier that's with David wants to uh, stick Saul into the ground and wants to kill him right there. David won't allow that to happen. The next morning he gets up and he has a conversation across the valley with Saul and David says these words. He says, why does my Lord pursue me? Why, why are you after me? I don't, even under, I don't even understand where this hatred is coming from, he says. And here's why. For what have I done? What evil is on my hands? I've only served you faithfully. I've only served the people of Israel faithfully. You know, sometimes people are mad at us and we don't even know why. Perhaps it's something that we said that was misconstrued. Perhaps it was something that we did that was misinterpreted or misunderstood. And we don't know why it was. And so a conversation is the first step to try and figure out why this person's so upset with us. Because it may be that they just misunderstood that something that you said or they mistook something that you did in a way that you didn't intend. And so starting with a conversation... You say, Gordon, that all sounds really good, but with some people, that just doesn't work. Like, I've tried to reason with them, I've tried to talk with them, I've tried to explain my position, I've tried to help them come around to understanding things from my perspective that I really didn't intend any harm. And I still can't win them over, I still can't get them to agree. I mean, they just keep coming at me, they're still angry with me. What do I do in a situation like that? Well, that's why we got principle number two, you ready? Here's principle number two, if somebody just keeps hating on you, even after you come and try to explain, even after you come and try to get to the bottom of whatever's going on, they don't want to hear about it, they don't want to have that conversation, they don't want to listen to reason, um, the scriptures tell us that in that scenario, and if somebody keeps hating on you, then we need to take the high road. That's me boiling down Romans chapter 12. Take a look at Romans chapter 12 with me, verse 18. Paul says, if possible, as far as it depends on you, live peaceably with everyone. Live peaceably with everyone. I love how God is a realist. God is not an idealist. God is a realist. He says, if it's possible, in as much as it's possible, try to live at peace with other people. God recognizes that there's going to be people in this world that you're not going to be able to agree with. There's going to be people in this world that are going to hate on you just because that's just what they do. And you cannot change their heart. You cannot change the way that they see the situation, even if you come to them with a conversation, even if you come to them and try and explain your position, they're just not going to hear it. And so in those situations, Paul says, if possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. God is a realist. And again, he says, so far as it depends on you. So you do your part to live at peace with other people. They may not be at peace with you, but in your heart, you can be at peace with them. They may not speak to you out on the street or at the, at the Thanksgiving family get-together, but hey, look, as far as it is on you, you're at peace with them. And so that's what the Scripture's saying here, is that don't let this set in your heart. Don't let this set in your life. Give it up. Let it go. Give it away to the Lord, and uh, you be at peace with them, even if they can't come to that place themselves. My dad used to have this saying that he always said to me when I was a little kid. He said, Gordy, can't call me that. He said, Gordy, he said, rise above it. 
rise above it. I can't tell you how many times I heard him say, Gordy, rise above it. I'd be over there arguing with my brother, Gordy, you need to rise above it. I'd be having problems with somebody at school or problems with somebody on the tennis team or on the basketball team at school. Gordy, you need to rise above it. What's he talking about there? He's saying, look, you can't change that person. You can't make them see things the way that you see it. You can't make them see, come around to how you're thinking or how you're approaching the situation. You can't make your brother stop picking on you. But what you can do is you can control yourself. You can rise above it. You can take the high road. You say, Gordon, but what if that other person, like my older brother, just keeps coming at me and coming at me and coming at me, right? What do I do in that scenario? How do I deal with that? They won't stop coming. Well, here's what the Bible says. If you keep reading those verses, Romans chapter 12 and verse 19 says, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Verse 20, to the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heat burning coals on their head. And so, friends, those coals of burning fire, right, that we're heaping on that person's head are not the frustration of the individual that they can't pick at you and get through to you and cause you to get a rise out of you. That's not what the burning coals are. The burning coals are literally, in the context of these verses, are the wrath of God. They are the vengeance of God. When we don't try to take vengeance into our own hands, it leaves room for God to take it himself. And friends, that I'm telling you, there's nothing worse than God having his day with an individual. Um, and so when we leave room for God to have that, his way with it, by not taking that vengeance of ourselves, by not trying to take those, uh, you know, all that situation in our own hands, then we are leaving it in God's hands. He'll do a much, much better job than you or I ever could. Now, did David do this? Absolutely, David did. Twice, David had the chance to kill Saul, and he didn't do it. Twice, David's men had the chance to kill Saul, and he didn't allow them to do it. You will never read, as you're reading through the story of David in 1st, 2nd Samuel, and any of the Psalms that David wrote, you will never, ever, ever read David say one bad word about King Saul. Had every opportunity to do so. He, Saul deserved all the comments that David could have thrown out there, but never once does David say anything bad about Saul. Never once does David try to undercut King Saul's uh, position. Never once does David try to do anything to weaken Saul's position? David said, although Saul may not be at peace with me, I'm at peace with him. Friends, if you've got somebody like that in your life who no matter what you do, they just keep coming, who no matter what you say or what you rationalize, they just keep hating. Friends, that does not mean that you're a bad Christian. It does not mean that you are displeasing God. It does not mean that you are a failure as a Christian. What it does mean is that just like David, you are trying to, as far as it depends on you, to live at peace with the other person. You can't change their heart. You can't change the way they see the situation. What you can do is deal with your own heart and your own self. Principle number three, third and finally, is that if somebody's hating on you, you keep on faithfully serving the Lord. And wasn't that what David did? We read that the last verse in verse 30 of 1 Samuel chapter 18. David uh, it says there that he just went out every day. And as the Philistines continue to present themselves, as the threats continue to present themselves, David just kept uh, doing his duty. 
He just kept showing up every day and doing what was expected of him. He didn't allow Saul's hatred of him to thwart him from, from doing what David was responsible to do. You know, one of the greatest dangers that we have in life, in having an enemy and having somebody that's hating on us, one of the greatest uh, dangers that we have is to let that enemy occupy our thoughts, is to let that enemy steal away from us our joy, is to let that enemy steal away from us uh, our, our time and our concentration in other areas that are our responsibilities that we're supposed to be doing. They, they just kind of take over everything else that's going on in our life, and all we can think about is that person and about how they feel about us. And friends, that's a real danger. You know, arguably, the greatest president in American history was Abraham Lincoln. But one of the things that uh, rarely is mentioned about him is how much the press despised Abraham Lincoln. I mean, they really hated this guy. And all the, every time that they had an opportunity to write something in the headlines, it was always negative about Abraham Lincoln. Uh, for example, the press on many occasions talked about Abraham Lincoln as an original gorilla. Uh, he had long arms, and if you've ever seen any portrait pictures of him, he kind of had a little bit of a gorilla look to him with that beard and no mustache. And uh, so they would all the time mock him and call him the original gorilla just to put him down. And all the political cartoons, the characterizations of him look like a gorilla. Um, he was called by one newspaper a first-rate, second-rate person. A first-rate, second-rate person. Another newspaper headlined, Never were issues so momentous placed in so feeble a hand. Um, one day, or one day the, uh, after the Lincoln, Lincoln delivered his Gettysburg Address, one Chicago paper said, The cheek of every American must twinge with shame as we have to read the silly, flat utterances of this man, and who we have to point out to, our, to, our, to foreigners as the president of the United States, end of quote. And friends, that's just a tiny taste of how horrible the press treated Abraham Lincoln. Never had anything good to say about him, even though he was doing so many things for our country. His response to all this, I quote, I do the very best I can, the very best that I know how to do, and I mean to keep on doing it until the very end. And if in the end it brings me out all right, what is said about me won't matter anyway. In other words, at the end of the day, when all the dust is settled and the world is able to then judge in hindsight, then all the stuff that's said about me, no one will remember. And do we? No. Listen to his focus. He said, nobody who is resolved to make the most out of his life can spare the time or the energy to get involved in personal contention. In other words, if you want to lose your focus, spend your days trying to win over your critics. If you want to lose your focus, spend your days and your energy trying to win over your critics. If you want to accomplish nothing, try to convince people who don't agree with you that they're wrong and that you're right. Lincoln said, I've got a country to run, and so I don't have time to try and win over all of my critics. I've got a country to run. I don't have time to try and convince people that I'm right and doing the things that I'm doing. I've got a country to run. I don't have time or the energy to put into trying to win over all these people who are hating on me. Friends, God may not have called you to run a country, but God has called you to run a family. And God has called you to your workplace. 
And God has called you to be a Christian uh, with integrity in all that you do. Don't let somebody's criticism of you deter you from accomplishing God's will and his plans in your life. Let's pray. Most gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the life of this great man, David, um, who in so many ways lived the example that you want for us to live. God, we pray that as we think about and meditate on his life and the way he conducted himself, we ask, Lord, that you would help us to see how you want us to deal with relationships and situations in our own lives. God, if there's people in our family, people in our workplace, old friends that just don't understand, that are unwilling to understand, Lord, may we take some of the principles that we've heard here today and not be thwarted from accomplishing your will for our lives. Lord, we submit ourselves to you. We pray these things in Christ's holy name.